Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Hey, I'm Charles Robinson, and welcome to Future City, the monthly show here on WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. The stigma of having mental health issues is no longer hidden in the recesses of society. Long gone are the days of suffering in silence. On this edition of Future City, we look at the challenges of admitting something isn't right. How has society treated mental disorders and what may be causing them? You'll hear from Morgan Reed. Reed has been convincing traditional medical facilities to use her expertise on new holistic approaches to coping with anxieties, stresses, and challenges. So, are you ready to ask for help? Well, where do you go? Jackie Ellis is with the Maryland Healthcare Connection. Their job is to match your concerns with the right doctors or clinics. Ellis will also explain the changes from dialing 911 for help to dialing 988 for people who are in crisis. This can be for suicide prevention to mental health counselors. But we kick off our show with a conversation with a longtime friend and mental health expert, Richard Rowe. Richard, let's talk about this whole idea. We have gone from institutionalization to deinstitutionalization. What has that done for mental health? It has placed a lot of uh, work or burden on the system that was pretty much uh, already taxed, taxed and overtaxed. And so when you um, deinstitutionalize, when you are letting or trying your best to figure out the best way to uh, push you know, people out of a uh, system and back into the community, and you're not prepared to receive those individuals that have mental health challenges, uh, then you're going to run into many, many more challenges. And so there was an attempt to try to, you know, um, you know prevent, you know, this kind of keeping folks confined and not letting folks basically reconnect to the community. And, and so over time, there was conversations and there was policies and practices that uh, basically saw a need to do something different. And this difference was trying to place again, uh, those who were having a lot of mental health challenges back into their communities, connect them to their families. And, and all that basically placed it to an enormous um, burden on, a, again, a system that, a system in the community that was not really prepared in my estimation. And this, this is my opinion, Charles. So again, you have a lot of folks, a lot of folks who are, who are scrambling for uh, services and resources. Uh, you, you basically open the floodgates and anytime you open the floodgates to anything, you're going to run into uh, an overburden you know, um, uh, if it's not prepared, if it's not ready to receive, you know, this this flooding of individuals back into your communities, you're going to experience some real serious challenges. And I think that's where we are, uh, uh, not only in this area, but across the country. And so I, I'm not sure. I mean, there will be a need to really to take a 
a, a look at progress made or lack thereof. And uh, in time, I'm quite sure there's going to be other iterations of deinstitutionalization. There's going to be an attempt to it attempts to basically uh, figure out what's the best way, best approach. I know you can't keep folks confined. I know you have to basically do other things. You've got to basically reform and more than that, dismantle some of the institutions that were basically housing a lot of the individuals uh, that were having these mental health challenges. So it's, that, it's, it's, a, it's another one of those issues that we thought we had the answer. Um, and we thought that it could be solved overnight or, uh, and it just, you know, I won't say turn it into a nightmare, but there have been many, many, many challenges to the institution, institutionalization. And that's the brief kind of uh, my brief overview of, of, of and trying to address your question. Let's talk about today. It's clear that there are a lot of young people with mental health issues and adults who with, with mental health issues. Some people are looking for what I would call easy fixes. I think you and I concur that there are no easy fixes to this problem that we are uh, encouraging. COVID and the pandemic has exacerbated a lot of things. But I want to focus in on the young people because, unfortunately, Richard, a lot of these mental health crises are manifesting themselves in young people who unfortunately have access to guns and have had deadly consequences. Can you talk about conflict resolution and how that plays into what we're seeing? Uh, yes. I mean, again, think about it. Um, access to guns, you know, um, adverse childhood experiences not really addressed you know, adverse, think about what I'm saying, Charles, adverse childhood experience, a lot of adverse experiences as children who are not neurologically uh, prepared to uh, respond or process those adverse childhood experiences, parents on drugs, parents uh, separated, uh, uh, racism, bullying, um, you got uh, violence, um, high levels of violence, you have all these different um, aspects of, of life happening at a very early age for a lot of these young people, you know, and if th those adverse childhood experiences, if those socially determinants of health, poor housing, lack of housing, and the list is long in terms of what is necessary for young people to uh, mature and to grow into healthy, conscious, competent human beings or adults. If those experiences of those issues are not addressed early, Charles, then what we are seeing are manifestations of those um, aspects of life, you know, uh, unaddressed, and we see them manifested in adult behavior, you know, uh, in adolescent behavior. And that's what we are witnessing, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a lot of young people who have deep emotional wounds, not addressed early, not addressed ever. Uh, young men, you know, my lot of my work, Charles, as you know, had to do with young men and black men and boys and over time. And so I I could see a lot of this coming because a lot of this was not addressed early on. And so you have this high levels of anger. You know, you have the inability to really, you know, deal with one's emotional wounds. And if those wounds are not addressed, if if you are not able, if your emotional intelligence um, um, uh, IQ 
is not high or is not you know where it ought to be, then you are going to resort to you're going to be very active and basically be caught or trapped in this this notion of ever present anger. And so you have a lot of young people who are unable to process anger related issues. Resort to what? Resort to whatever they see. They, we, we live in an environment right now where, you know, there are more guns than people in this country. There, there are violence, they, they witness violence on almost in every movie that they go to see or on social media platforms, on games. And so you got a, this confluence of all these different, you know, factors that are contributing to uh, the uh, uh, to the to the problem of not being able to see view, observe, address, and, and deal with this growing uh, um, uh, issue around conflict. And so we're just seeing, again, the manifestation of all the things that I've mentioned, in addition to what happened, Charles, during the pandemic. So we have to factor in the pandemic when there was periods of isolation, there was a lot of mood swings, there was a lot of notions and feelings of hopelessness, a lot of feelings of I mean, su- suicide ideation increased amongst this, in this population of young people, anxiety increased, chronic stress. So all these things, Charles, think about all the things that I've mentioned and, and trying to place all that on the shoulders and, and within, uh, on the shoulders of young people who, again, as I said earlier, neurologically, brains are not ready and able to process all that. A lot of adults are not able to process a lot of the things that I've just mentioned. So that's that's what, what all this ends up looking like. And then we then try to, to simply look at, you know, uh, a conflict resolution model uh, in and of itself. It's not going to address all the things that I mentioned, as, as both of us know. Uh, you're going to try, you're going to be in a reactionary mode. I'm not saying conflict resolution is not important, but it cannot be, uh, and I'm not. I'm certain that a lot of the folks who are trying to push this out uh, are saying that this is the answer, the answer. But again, it's rising to the top of the list of, of interventions, and I think we're going to run into more problems if we don't understand by now that we have to really truly connect the dots, and that's just one dot of so many other interventions. Uh, primary, secondary, and tertiary interventions that we have to employ in order to really, really address the problems that we are witnessing today in real time. A number of communities in the state and around the state are looking for quick fixes. Mm-hmm. I was surprised to see that Angela also Brooks, the county executive in Prince George's County, implement a curfew for young people. Same is true for the mayor of D.C. She is going to implement a curfew. Baltimore City has resisted it. What can you tell us about this idea? Is it a solution or is it a Band-Aid? Charles, you know, again, these, these are my opinions from my years of, of working <laughs> in space in this area. And I, and I, I know it's, it's a political solution. It's a solution to appeal to the constituents. The so-called uh, stakeholders in a community are requesting and demanding, and the people are requesting and demanding solutions. And when you are, when we are, when we, when we ignore problems for as long as we have ignored the problems and when we basically are not committed to addressing systems, policies, practices, and budgets. 
when we really are not addressing all of the above, then you have to resort to quick fixes. You have to resort to, you know, um, the optics and the hopefully, you know, you might, you know, try your best to slow down the, the, the pressure or to mitigate the pressure that is, 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 is coming because folks are looking for, for these are elected officials to do something, you know, and so curfews uh, is one part of the, could be one part of the solution in the last stages of the problem. You know, when you have, when you have, when you either have exhausted other means to really address the problems that we're talking about, or you, or you haven't addressed them at all. And so now you're looking for, you know, what might be most available right now to let the constituents, let the people know that we're trying to do something to abate or to arrest the problems that we're seeing right now. Curfews are going to appeal to some. It's not going to really uh, end the problems that we are seeing right now, because again, you know, you stop, you know, the problem by, or you, or you, you think you're addressing the problem by bringing children into, back home or shutting down uh, activities and so forth at a certain time of the day. But we're seeing a lot of incidences of crime and violence taking place, you know, prior to the curfews. The curfews, if you bring people in to, uh, and bring people in, shut down activities, et cetera, folks will find, young people will find other means and other ways to carry out their violent activities if the other issues and other things that we're talking about have not been addressed. And, and so I just think, Charles, that, you know, to really answer your question, I think it's a political uh, uh, solution. Uh, and I think that when you only place into the into the community political solutions without, again, looking at public health models or public health paradigm, again, where you look at the primary level of interventions, you look at the secondary levels of intervention or treatment, and then you look at, you know, uh, you look at uh, the tertiary level, of course, is you're looking at other ways to really bring all the pieces together when you have a comprehensive approach to problem solving. That's how you end, end up solving problems. You got to have a comprehensive, comprehensive approach to solving problems. And I just think this approach, again, curfew is not comprehensive and, and it's not enough to really deal with the issues that we are that are confronted that we're confronted with. Richard, you and I have talked for a long time about this, and you've always had a holistic approach to trying to deal with mental health. Look out there and tell me what's available and tell me how do we get there? The good news, Charles, is that, you know, we are now in a, um, you know, folks talk about a reflection point. They talk about, you know, a tipping point. You know, there's more conversations and more discussions about mental health and healing and trauma-informed care and healing-centered engagement, all these different paradigms and approaches, strategies. And there's never been a time where we've talked as much about these things uh, as we are doing right now. And a lot of that had to do with the uh, police brutality uh, um, protests or the, the, the George Floyd, all these different uh, young men who were being shot and killed. Uh, or basically harmed and su- all the suffering that has taken place, race-based trauma, all of these things, trials that has led to this increased conversation about what should we do now and how can we address these issues and these problems. I just think that, you know, this is one of those times when we're either going to up our up the ante, lean all the way in, 
and make some decisions, again, that will address systems, you know, systems uh, that all around the school systems that basically are not doing everything that they must do in order to prepare young people for the future. Uh, you know, a lot of the talk around, you know, when you when you have a stat like this, Charles, that only 12% of our young people in public schools in this area and around the country are really proficient. Uh, that's a system that has failed young people um, uh, enormously. 12% are reading proficient and about 16% math proficient in a world where you have to be able to read and you have to be able to compute. I mean, that right there is a sad, abominable statistic. There are many, many more. So when you have systems and you're not addressing systems, uh, Department of Juvenile Justice, um, Department of Welfare, when you're not basically uh, following up with uh, the policies that are needed in order to make certain that young people feel valued, they feel uh, like they have a chance, they have opportunities and so forth. Those are the kind of things that really must be addressed and must be addressed you know, in a real, tangible way. So systems, policies, practices, and budgets. Uh, and again, we're, we're in a moment where there is a lot of money being poured into a lot of cities and so forth. So again, there's opportunities. When you have monies, when you have uh, uh, the will, when you have people lifting up these issues and talking about it, that's the good news. This, the bad news, Charles, is that we're still not dealing with issues related to how do we hold these systems accountable? How do we hold those that are working to address these problems accountable? We can have these interventions uh, implemented. They go on for years without basically determining if they're having the impact that we all want to see, especially in the field of mental health. Mental health is one of those areas where you might not see immediate results and, and uh, so forth within uh, a, a limited time frame. But you have to basically put in place, you know, uh, centers, uh, healing centers. You've got to put in place interventions that have uh, that will be that can endure all the challenges that are going to come from without comfort from within. You've got to deal with families. A lot of interventions only deal with uh, the, um, the young person, but ignore caregivers, ignore uh, family members and so forth and parents. And so you got to have, again, a comprehensive approach to dealing with the problems of, of youth violence and uh, the issues that we are confronted with today. So I see opportunities. I see a lot of opportunities because we have a, a lot of conversations that are taking place around the, around the country, throughout the philanthropic community, throughout you know city government, throughout state governments, and so forth. We have some politicians that understand these issues and some of the problems that we're talking about that might bring you know uh, solutions to bear. We got to be uh, uh, bold and we have to be transformational in our approach to dealing with these issues again, Charles, because we haven't we've waited so long. To come to the point, to come to, the, to this this place that I'm hoping will be uh, the um, uh, the place where we can connect the dots, where we can basically up the ante and realize that you know there's more things that we can do. We have to basically uh, believe that young people that are moving throughout our communities are worth you know not just saving but are worth giving uh, as all the things that they need in order to be what productive citizens, uh, to be committed uh, citizens at some point. Uh, and I think that those are some of the things that I'm hopeful will be part of the solutions um, that, are, that are very much needed today. That's Richard Rowe. He is a mental health expert. 
And we thank him for joining Future City. Thank you, Charles, very much. A pleasure. Always a pleasure and an honor to be with you, sir. Thanks, Richard Rowe. Rowe is a practicing mental health expert. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We don't want you to go anywhere. In our next segment, you're going to hear from Morgan Reed, who is part of a growing segment of mental health professionals who are shifting the paradigm. Instead of medication as the first course of action, some are using a holistic approach to treat those in their care. You'll hear her methodology and why doctors are putting it in their portfolio of care. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On today's show, we're looking at how mental health is changing our society. For the longest time, a lot of those suffering did so in silence. A number of athletes and celebrities have announced they have had episodes where they needed help. It's opened up a number of avenues to treat those who have long suffered. Talking about your problems is just one way. Those who treat patients are also looking to new alternatives. We speak with Morgan Reed, who is trained in alternative treatments for those suffering from mental strains. I am delighted to be joined by Morgan Reed. She is a health and wellness expert, and she's going to help us understand a little bit about the new approaches to dealing with mental health issues. First of all, Morgan, let's begin with this. What we did in the past doesn't seem to didn't seem to work. Tell me how you're approaching mental health and what you're doing to try and, you know, help those who may be in crisis. Yes. As a health and wellness coach and mental health advocate, first and foremost, I do have to say that I practice my own tools and things like that for my uh, own mental health. And I think that's the starting point in dealing with other people and their mental health crisis. Also, as um, a health and wellness coach, I deal with a lot of individuals who are um, dealing with a lot of health issues and concerns. And so with navigating through those health issues and concerns, a lot of the time they have different issues that might cause them to more so enter the hospital more than than, than needed. Throughout the pandemic, a lot of the depression and anxiety has really grown and increasing the numbers in the hospital. And so a lot of the time with me, I do navigate through having those individual sessions. And most of the time I realize that they are having a mental health crisis. And so dealing with that, I um, have an individualistic approach, building on that rapport and navigating through what is the specific need for them and really kind of diving deeper and having those more so difficult conversations, because a lot of the time people, they don't realize or they don't um, feel comfortable with going and seeking that 
um, support for their mental health as far as a therapist or um, someone like me, health and wellness coach or um, a counselor and things like that. So it's really opening their um, minds up to having that choice and that individualistic approach opposed to running to somewhere like a facility of the hospital. I know there has been a stigma associated when people are having issues. When I say issues, you know, be it anxiety, be it depression, be it suicide or whatever. How difficult is it to get someone to come to the realization that I need some help here? Well, first they have to feel comfortable and even realize that they're having that issue. A lot of the time they may not even realize that it's something it's, it's, they think it's stress and they think that, Oh, I'll, I'll be okay. Or um, sometimes it can even be um, and talking about spiritual aspect. Maybe they think that they just maybe can pray on it and things like that. And, and they're not aware of, how they can seek more help in that that aspect or that something's even um, going on. And so being able, I have the opportunity to um, meet with these individuals and open that door for them and having those conversations. And so uh, I may approach it where, how, how are you feeling today, right? And just that simple question they can open up and say, actually, I wasn't able to get out of the bed today. I had to force myself to get up and come talk to you. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Why did you have a difficult time getting out of the bed and what's going on? And then that can open up another door. Actually, I'm not able to pay for um, where I'm staying or actually I, I've been eating or um, my diet, I, I feel like I can't stop eating. And I, I know I'm using it. every time I feel stressed, I want to go grab a bag of chips or things like that. So it's just kind of having those conversations and digging a little bit deeper as to why you're going through that. And then asking reflective questions. Why is it that you are, why do you think you're feeling this way? Okay, so when you were feeling like you wanted to grab those bag of potato chips, what happened? That's really kind of having, starting off with those those conversations and building that rapport with that person and then asking those questions and then growing, um, going towards the tools. And, and that's really the start of it. I want to talk a little bit about the actual therapies that you do. What are some of your go-to therapies that you have in your arsenal? Well, the different tools that I use would be more so either because I specialize in stress management. And so with um, stress management, I really do kind of have a focal point of, well, what's causing that stress? And so the first few sessions would be the start of what's what's causing that stress. Let's talk about that. And a lot of the time it may be trauma that recently happened, or it could be um, stress from daily life. So daily life uh, decisions and things like that also can be self-awareness, not necessarily knowing 
yourself and what you need and what's going on um, internally and externally. And so having those first conversations is what's needed. And then after that, um, after navigating through those first conversations, then um, I may provide um, I, I may provide an assessment um, and it's kind of like a psychometric testing. Sometimes it'll be a list of questions, just regular questions. How do you kind of navigate through the day? Um, also, as far as um, joy or happiness, what are those things that bring you joy and happiness? Um, are you losing sleep? What? How's your sleeping habits? And I'll even, because I'm holistic, I'll even go into, have you checked your weight? And what are your daily habits of eating and things like that? So I'm not just asking um, about the daily question. I'm also asking about everyday things such as your diet and your weight and your stress level and how uh, you navigate through that. And so once I get those results, I'm able to see where where we need to work on, right? Where, where, uh, what are the next steps that we need to do? And it, it's, it's not just an overnight thing. So I do try to tell my clients it doesn't happen overnight. It's usually about three months till you finally start to see something happening. And so after those, um, those first few sessions and then that testing, then we go through and really dive into what's going on. And I like to open up the, the first few minutes of the session to what they want to talk about, because a lot of the time they have these issues that they don't know what to do. And I'm not one to give the advice. I really um, am an advocate for the client knowing that they were able to get through this and it was their decision because it's all about decisions and them feeling that, wait a second, I was able to get through this situation recently. Um, okay, I made this decision to do this. And then because I don't, I'm not trying to be there long term. Right. I want to be able to support you for as long as you need. And then you're able to make those um, decisions so that you can keep going for yourself. And then after that, there will be another test to see how you have improved and um, what's changed. And also just making sure that they were ready for change. So going through that cycle of ready um, for change. And that's kind of the gist of how the, the program would be understand that you do some non-traditional stuff, i.e. yoga and aromatherapy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I am a yoga instructor. And because I am holistic and focusing on the mind and body, it really is connected. Um, I used to work um, in the psychiatric, not psychiatric, physical therapy department of the hospital. And so once I um, worked with those different clients, I did realize how much your mind impacts your body, even in healing. And so first you have to start off with your mind and be mentally ready, and then your body kind of flows from there. And so with yoga, um, not only because I do love it and I am a, a yogi myself, I uh, really try to express the benefits with yoga and how it can bring that connection to your mind and body. And once you feel and find that the stabilization you need for your to be able to move properly or have that alignment, 
you uh, begin to feel a bit at ease throughout your day. So a lot of the time, it can either be I recommend a yoga in the morning or yoga at night. So you can um, have a good night's rest and things like that. So it's it's about how you're connecting the mind and body. And that's that's very, very important, especially as you're healing through anything. I want you to look into the future because our show is called Future City. What will your profession look like in about five to 10 years from now? Well, I am excited to say how much is growing. When I first started, especially with my um, master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology, no one really knew what that was and how it's the study of human flourishing. And now it's incorporated in a lot of our um, industry and with mental health as well and using those different practices. And so um, as the years um, keep going, I definitely think it's going to be an industry that will continue to grow because it does provide that individualistic support and approach for a lot of individuals. And also in the medical field as well, it's definitely been growing as far as I work in a hospital now, um, contracted with the hospital. And so using and working with different patients is definitely something that uh, will continue to grow to provide another support system. It's all about what can we do to help each other and continue to add on to what has already worked and what will continue to change. We're always ready for change and we're always going through what learnings we need to do psychologically to be successful for each person. That's Morgan Reed. She is a health and wellness coach. Thank you, Morgan, for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the opportunity. You can check me out and follow me on Instagram at Mindfully Balanced and Wholeness or Morgan Shalane. And that's M-O-R-G-A-N-S-H-E-L-A-I-N-E. And you can also email me at mindfullybalancingwholeness at gmail.com or morganshalane at gmail.com. And that's again, M-O-R-G-A-N-S-H-E-L-A-I-N-E at gmail.com. We do Instagram lives every Sunday. Also keep a lookout for our Mindfully Balancing Wholeness podcast that will be in production in January, 2023. Thanks, Morgan Reed. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City here on 88.1 WYPR. We have to take another break, but don't you go anywhere. In our last segment, we'll hear from the Maryland Healthcare Connection Service, who can point you to those who can help. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Charles Robinson, and you're listening to Future City, the monthly show here on 88.1 WYPR, where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. So you've made the decision to get help. What are your options? The state of Maryland has tried to make things easier by creating the Maryland Healthcare Connection. It's part of a clearinghouse to assist those who need help. Jackie, let's let's first of all begin with these days, mental health has become front and center because unfortunately, our society has been challenged 
to try and address the issues. Can you talk a little bit about those those challenges and opportunities you see out there? I think some of the challenges that we are seeing is access to care. Um, there are individuals who lack access to quality health care. You know, we speak a lot about social determinants of health. Um, so if you don't have health insurance, you're not likely to seek out resources that you need, such as mental health. Um, that has been a challenge that we have definitely seen with Healthcare Access Maryland's Here to Help Line. Um, in addition to that, just education and access to quality, that's another social determinant of health. If an individual does not know how to advocate for themselves, then it creates a barrier for them. So we do provide also a lot of education for them as well. In addition, economic stability, we have to look at where these marginalized populations that we're serving reside and how that impacts their um, their wherewithal to advocate on their own behalf. So I do see those as a lot of challenges. However, I also see it as a, an awesome opportunity and part of the work that we do here at Healthcare Access Maryland through our various programs, because we have health insurance programs where we're able to connect individuals to health insurance, as well as to provide them with education around what those benefits are and coordinate services for them to get those needed services. In addition to that, we have programs that fall under our complex care and social needs programs where we are addressing individuals where they are right in the community on a grassroots level within those emergency rooms and those hospitals, where we are meeting individuals where they are in treatment centers and recovery, where we're meeting individuals who are incarcerated to make sure that they are connected to health insurance and that they're able to access supportive services that they need. I note that you know, over the years, mental health services have changed. The idea of institutionalization has gone by the wayside. You've already indicated that many individuals, you have to meet them where they are, i.e. in communities. Talk about how that has, how you're reimagining mental health services in especially in these times, because I think the stresses of society, everything from COVID to to other other issues in communities are are I think are stressing people. Am I wrong on that? No, you're not wrong that individuals are being stressed. I think they were stressed prior to the pandemic, even more so now, um on on the other side of this, the pandemic. Um you, you, you talked about it, reimagining mental health, and, and that's happening. Um, recently, the National Suicide and Crisis Hotline, 988, I know that you're seeing it everywhere. It was newly implemented in July, and it is a three-digit number, very easy to remember. Prior to that, you know we had a 10-digit number. When an individual is in the midst of a crisis um, or feeling hopeless, um, they're not likely to remember a 10-digit number. However, this 988 number will connect them to the crisis center in their jurisdiction. And, and there, from there, they will, will be engaged with competent and compassionate counselors who are ready to provide them with the services that they need. I know a lot of people will hear this new number and go, 
Well, what's going to happen when I call this number? Sure. Can you walk us through that, if you don't mind? So they'll contact the 988 number. Let me be clear. The 988, the National Suicide and Crisis Lifeline, is there to like support the structures that are already in place through organizations such as the Baltimore Crisis Response Unit and the other jurisdictional crisis call centers. So that one call will connect them to a competent counselor who will assess their needs and refer them to their jurisdiction for services. Now, speaking specifically about Baltimore City, when a call goes into the Baltimore Crisis Response Unit, who is one of our collaborating partners, if the individual is not in immediate crisis and is just needing to receive behavioral services, then a warm handoff is made to Health Care Access Maryland's here to help hotline. We assess them. We discuss their treatment options because we operate from a person centered. We want them to make an informed choice and decision about how they'd like to proceed with their behavioral health treatment. And then we collect conference call and collaborate with both the consumer and the provider to get a scheduled appointment for them. That's the goal, to get them a scheduled appointment, to see a therapist and a psychiatrist right away, and then to support them until they are engaged in services. I know that there has always been a stigma, especially in communities of color, about seeking mental health services. How do you change that paradigm? I think it definitely will take a collective um, effort. We need to really have those difficult conversations to remove the stigma, um, remove the stigmas around mental health. I was looking at the World Health Organization's website the other day, and um, they considered suicide as the leading cause of death for young people between the ages of 15 and 29. And with at least somewhere around 800,000 people that die by suicide each year. You know, that was disheartening to me because one suicide is one suicide too many. And so how do we change that? We be very real and we have those conversations. We we. We go into the schools, we we engage and embrace non-traditional approaches to helping individuals, right? Because if we look at what we've done in the past and we saw that that wasn't working or needed to be modified, then we need to make those changes and move forward. And we need to be open, open to ways that we haven't always looked at, like incorporating a faith-based community, right? And really having those individuals who we serve at the table, right? Because how can we make policies and how can we we address the issues without having the very individuals at the table who we're trying to serve? Because they can best tell us. And then putting those dollars where, where necessary for treatment and for support. I note, and I've been writing about this for a number of years, and you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but there are more people who unfortunately have i call it mental health issues i.e depression anxiety suicidal tendencies am i wrong in noting that we're either collecting more data or that there are an increased number of folks who are finding themselves in mental health crises I think it's a combination of both. We are, well, there is a lot of data, you know, that's what drives everything. And so I can't discount that. 
I think we're doing a good job of getting education out there. I think people have been kind of going through the motions and maybe experiencing things that they didn't know were maybe symptomatic of depression. Maybe they didn't know that what they were feeling um, was something that they could talk through with a therapist. So I think the education is going forth and that's a good thing. So I think more individuals are being able to identify what's going on with them and being okay with reaching out to re- receive help. I think um, some of the things that are presently taking place, such as primary care physicians talking about depression now and having that pre-screening in the emergency room, your OBGYN having those conversations with you doing the visits. Those were things that weren't necessarily taking place in the past, right? Providers operated in silo, providing only the service that they provided. And now they are open to discussing mental health and discussing how much are, how much alcohol are you drinking and doing those mass screenings right in the, the waiting room while you're waiting to see your primary care physician. I think that we're seeing that we can no longer operate in silo, but collectively must come together if we want to change the trajectory of where we're going um, with fentanyl deaths increasing, the number of drug overdoses increasing, like we have to do something different. I want to get out of here on this. What does the future look like for mental health? Is it more treatment? Is it more therapies? Is it a new approach? I think it's a combination of all of that, Mr. Robinson. I was actually at the tech conference on yesterday, and one of the speakers actually discussed what um, our president proposed in the 2022-23 budget. And so there's $11.2 billion um, being being dispersed across health and human services with $3.9 billion more than the previous year. So I think resources, uh, an increase in resources is definitely a step in the right direction. They want to expand services. That's needed. But they also want to do work around prevention, treatment, harm reduction, and recovery support services. And, and 10% of that being set aside for those recovery support services. And I don't think that that has been given the attention that has been needed in terms of behavioral health services in the past. We, we assist individuals with getting off drugs and then the necessary supports aren't in place to help them maintain that sobriety. Some of them need long-term recovery support services. And so I think that that's something that's going to be beneficial to this population for sustaining sobriety. That's Jacqueline Ellis. She's with Maryland Healthcare Access. Jacqueline, thank you so very much for joining us. You are quite welcome. Thank you so much, Mr. Robinson, for allowing me to come and and, and spend this, this morning with you. Healthcare Access Maryland, where we are making Maryland as healthy by connecting residents to insurance, care coordination, health education, healthy living, and advocating for a more equitable healthcare system, please visit us on our website at healthcareaccessmaryland.org and reach out to us for any services that you may need. It has been a pleasure, Mr. Robinson. Thank you. Thanks, Jackie Ellis from the Maryland Healthcare Connection for joining us. If you are going through a crisis, here are the three-digit numbers you can use immediately. It's 988. The number again is 988. We'll post the number on the WYPR website. How do you tell someone some things aren't right with you mentally? It's a tricky conversation. 
with so many external factors from COVID-19, isolation, and yes, the unending pressure to get through it. Coping is part of it, but many times you need a good listener and maybe even a professional who can assess you for a diagnosis that only a licensed professional can provide. I want to stress, if you're in a position where taking your life seems like a viable option, I want to urge you to use the new 988 number who can connect you to suicide prevention counselors. There is help. Lastly, there is no shame in asking for assistance. We at Future City want to be a lifeline for anyone going through trauma, life's challenges, and anyone you know who needs help. Check out our website for resources. Thank you to today's guests for sharing their expertise and allowing us to hear their knowledge. Future City is produced and edited by Spencer Bryant. You can listen to extended conversations with all of our guests and find out more about them by visiting wypr.org and search for Future City. We welcome your feedback, and you can always email us with your thoughts and questions at futurecity, that's one word, at wypr.org. Until next time, I'm Charles Robinson for 88.1 WYPR and my producer Spencer Bryant and everyone who makes Future City possible. We hope your dreams of tomorrow become a reality. I'm your host, Charles Robinson. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.